0: Good morning, Parkhurst Church. Um, my name is Linka, as Wiseman has said, or, has said already. Um, and yeah, it is a privilege for me to be able to bring and open God's Word to you guys this morning. Uh, Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. My shouting too. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. Um, yeah, I hope you guys are spoiled today and that you have a really lovely day. Uh, we are blessed to have you guys. Um, every now and again, I tend to think about what is going on in the world, and I always ask myself, like, what, like, what's going on? There seems to be so much chaos. There seems to be so much disorder. I mean, we can think of a lot of examples. Um, here in the Pakistan area, a prevalent one that we see just as we step outside is Homelessness. A lot of homeless guys, a lot of guys just hustling, trying to make ends meet. Um, In our country, we see a lot of corruption. Um, We see things like Operation Dudula. That's happening in Alex right now. Um, And it's basically xenophobic attacks. We see rape, we see murder, we see divorce. We see so many things. There's a lot of brokenness. Worldwide, we see that comedians being attacked on stage. Right? People are being slapped. People are being tackled. Um, but we also see wars. Um, we we all know what we all know what's going on in Ukraine right now. Um, but the thing is, when we think about this disorder, about this chaos that, that always happens in the world we always seem to, we really see ourselves in this, right? We always detach ourselves from everything happening in the world. And as we keep wondering why the world is is in such a state, um, I want to just remind us that this is not how it should be. This is not how the world should be. But this also, what's going on in the world, isn't new. And as we look through Psalm 2 today, I hope that we see a picture of the hope that we can put our trust in. I'm going to read the psalm, so we're going to be spending our time this morning in Psalm 2. I'm going to read the psalm and then I'm going to pray and then we'll get into it. Psalm 2, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have forgotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces, like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word and all it means to us today. We pray that you may just ready our hearts for your message this morning. Um, I pray for myself. Pray that I may just bring Your word and explain it in a way that brings You honor. And I pray that our hearts may receive it, and that we may understand and learn and be challenged on how we are called to live as people who trust in You. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. So Psalm two is a royal psalm, as um, as wise men introduced us to the Psalms last week, we see that uh, Psalms 1 and 2 are like an intro into the whole book of Psalms, Um, and Psalm 2 particularly is what we call a royal psalm or a messianic psalm, Um, and we will see why it is so. So the first thing we see in the passages is in verses 1 to 6, is that the world rebels against God. The world rebels against God. We see this in verse 1 to 3. We see a rebellion. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their courts from us. So what we see here is four mentioned people. We see nations, we see peoples, we see kings, and we see rulers. And all of them have come together. They have united. And what are they doing? They rage, they plot, they set themselves, and they take counsel. All of this with one aim, and that is a coup. They want to rule themselves. They aren't just plotting against the Lord alone, though, but they are plotting also against His anointed, His appointed King, the one chosen by Him. They want to burst their bonds apart and cast their courts from them. They do not want to be ruled by God. They do not want to be under His commandments. They do not like their consciences. Being ruled by his law. They want to be kings. They want to be kings over him. They want to determine for themselves how they should be allowed to live. We see the vanity of all of this, though, in the psalm. Verse 1 opens with why? Ask two rhetorical questions Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? This why points to the use, uselessness of the act. All of this is doing nothing against a sovereign God, a God possessing supreme or ultimate power who created everything and is in control of the whole of His creation. They are plotting against Him, the one who knows everything, the one who knows their thoughts, the one who knows what's going on in their hearts, they're trying to put together plans against him, as if he doesn't know. They are trying to come up with a game plan for the one who knows all game plans, including theirs. This is comedic, really, if you think about it. And it is indeed all in vain. We see in verses 4 to 6 how the Lord responds to them. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There's this podcast that I listen to, um, that I've been listening to over the last couple of months. It's called Real Dictators. Uh, and it's basically a podcast about like, real-life dictators and everything that happens. And it's always surprising that when, whenever the dictatorships crumble and fall, or as they're about to crumble and fall, everyone, when everyone around them is plotting and forming allegiances to bring them down, the dictators run, they hide, they try to get their families out as quickly as possible to safety all while using the last bits of influence to try and remain in power. That is not what the Lord does here. Like I said, this is comedic. Like, really? Really? They're trying to do this against the Lord? The Lord, in fact, laughs at them. He mocks them. That's what holds them in derision. Means He mocks them. He doesn't take their attempts to overthrow him as threatening in any way at all. And so he laughs. But when the Lord laughs, that's not a laugh that brings joy. He, He then speaks to them and they are terrified. He reprimands them and reminds them that there is already a chosen king that leads me to the next point we see that in verses 7 to 9 that god has already appointed this king it says i will tell of the decree the lord said to me you are my son today i have begotten you take of me and i will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession you shall break them with a the rod of iron and dashed them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So here we see this king, the the Messianic king, the, the Davidic king, speaking. And he says he will tell of this decree. Now a decree is a divine oracle spoken when the king took his throne. says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the Lord speaking to his son, to this king. And this is a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, where it says, God says, I will be to him a father. This is God making a covenant with David. It says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will make the nations your heritage, the nations meaning the Gentiles, people outside of the nation of Israel. This king that is coming, this messianic king, will rule over all the earth. This king, the anointed, he declares here his rights of sovereignty and warns the traitors of their doom. you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. They will be completely destroyed. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, a, po- a potter's vessel like a vase. If, if, if you smash it, it, it becomes completely destroyed. He will use the rod of iron to do that. He will rule. The word break in the the the... Latin translation um, of the Old Testament, the word breaks it there can be translated in you shall rule. So he shall rule over them. And this rod, think about a, a shepherd's staff almost, can be used as both something to protect but also something, a weapon against enemies. And and the fact that it says it will be an iron one details its superiority. With it, with this iron rod, he leads, he protects, and he destroys. And with it, he will rule over all. He has a right to be king and the power to conquer. And that includes power, and superiority over the rebels as well. Spurgeon puts it like this. Charles Spurgeon, the old English preacher, he says, those who will not bend must break. Those who will not bend must break. And so now what are the rebels to do? Where should they turn? Should they abandon their plans? Then what? What? We see in verses 10 to 12, we see that the vanity, we see the vanity of the efforts of the people that rebel against God and how they respond. Rather than being given an ultimatum, they are given an invitation. The only way they can respond is to surrender to the king. Verse 10 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is an advice to the kings. It says, be warned, be wise. They, in this moment, should turn to wisdom. And they should do it now. For his wrath is quickly kindled. The nations and the rulers from verses 1 and 2 are offered their only hope. Their only hope out of this is submission. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Let reverence and humility be mingled in that service. They need to humble themselves below this king because he is great and he is awesome and they are merely creatures. It says, kiss the sun. This this pointing towards them, surrendering everything. Wave the white flag. Give up your power or whatever power you thought you had. And what's the result of all of that? If they do that, it says that, then blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that reminds me of Psalm 34 verse 8. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Wiseman talked talked about uh, being blessed from Psalm 1, and this is the same word used here. Happy will be the one who takes refuge in him they will be happy, and they will be safe. So what about me and you? What is God saying through Psalm 2 to us today? What what do we do with this? I think the first thing we need to realize is that the one who rebels is you. The one who rebels is me. The ones who rebel are us, all of us. Don't just think about the bad people. It's not just the rapists. It's not just the racists. It's not just the world leaders. We play a part in the rebellion. We rebel individually. We rebel as a city. We rebel as a province. We rebel as a nation, as a continent, as a man. All of us rebel. We want to red God out of our lives because we want to be our own kings. We want to come up with our own rules. We too want to burst God's bonds apart and cast his cords away from us. It is in our nature. We are utterly sinful. We hate the rules, and we want to do away with them. Joel James, uh, a a pastor here in South Africa, said in his book, Who is God? He puts it like this. He says, sinners, and that's me and you, we might wish that God didn't stick so closely to the rules. In fact, we would prefer for God to bend the rules, waive the rules, or banish the idea of rules altogether. We want to get rid of them. We don't like them at all. We want them to be as far away from us as possible. This is a result of Genesis 3. And we, have, as man, have continued straying further and further away from God. We will always want to wrestle for power against Him. We will always want to be kings. And all of this, unfortunately, is in vain. Because the Lord has set His king on Zion, His holy hill, and there will be no other king. We just sang about Jesus being enthroned. Jesus is enthroned. He is the Lord's anointed. He is the Christ. And we can never be superior to him, no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, no matter which plans we come up with. The passage, uh, Psalm 2, I just want to explain something in Psalm 2, verse 7. It talks about, it's, the Lord says to the Son, You are my Son, today I have begotten you, to the King. Um, but what does this mean? Does this mean that Christ, if it is Christ, uh, does it mean that He was born, like, was He created? Because that's what begotten comes from. It means bringing to life. But we find an explanation in Romans 1 verses 3 and 4 uh, where Paul explains this. He says concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what Paul is saying here in verse 4 is that Jesus was declared by God the Father to be the Son of God in power when He was raised from the dead and installed at the right hand as the Messianic King. As the eternal Son of God, we have to realize this. It would be wrong doctrine and wrong understanding to think that Jesus only became God's Son at that point. No, it says as the eternal Son of God. He has reigned forever with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But this verse here refers to Jesus as the, as the God-Man reigning in Messianic power. Son of God, that term was a Jewish title for the Messiah. And this reign began, or i.e. was declared or initiated, at a certain point in salvation history i.e., when Jesus was raised from the dead through the Holy Spirit, according to the spirit of holiness. Christ's great power is always connected to the Holy to the holiness of the Holy Spirit as He works in the new covenant age. So it's not a mistake. Like he he was begotten as Jesus Christ the God man, when he took up his reigns as the messianic king, when he resurrected through the power of the Holy Spirit, that is when he became the Messiah. That that is when it was declared to him that he was the Son of God, or finalized, if I may say. But how how else do we know that the king that Psalm 2 talks about is, in fact, Jesus? Well, Acts 13.33 says, This he has fulfilled to us by children to ask their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are also my son. Today I have begotten you. So Paul is saying here that the second psalm, the one we just read, he says that it is about Jesus. It, it is about the risen Christ. We also see in Acts 4, to 27, it says, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So he's quoting Psalm 2 there. But he goes on to say, it goes on to say, for truly in this city, where they were gathered together against your holy servant jesus whom you anointed the anointed one both herod and pontius pilate along with the gentiles and the peoples of israel huh did you guys see that there are those four again we see herod antipas the king the kings we see pontius pilate the governor or the ruler we see the gentiles the nations And we see the peoples of Israel. That's exactly what Psalm 2 is talking about. Psalm 2 is pointing towards this. They all came together against Jesus. And so this messianic king can only be him. What did they do? They killed him. They killed the Christ. That is why we know that This king is Jesus, because Scripture clearly tells us so. So he was killed, he died, but it didn't stay like that. He then resurrected and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Resurrected, ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power. And because of this, there are a few implications. If Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, it means that the nations are his heritage. It means that the ends of the earth are his possession. And it means that he will break them with, a rod, with an iron rod and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That still holds. That prophecy from Psalm 2 still holds. He will rule. In fact, He is ruling. He is sovereign. And no matter how much chaos there is in the world, no matter how much chaos there seems to be in the world, He remains in control. He is ruling over this world right now. He is ruling over me and He is ruling over you. So what does this mean for me and you because of that? In light of this truth, what does this mean for me and you? It means that because we are the rebels, we are called to be wise. We are warned to be wise. Spurgeon says, it is always wise to be willing to be instructed, especially when such instructions tend to the salvation of the soul. It is always wise to be willing to be instructed, especially when such instruction tends to the salvation of the soul. Be wise. Be wise. Save your soul. Because we are rebels, it means that we should be warned. It means that we should kiss the sun. Kissing the sun, like I explained, means we should surrender everything. To him. Everything. We talked about the fact that in Genesis 3, sin caused us to be rebels against God, right? Because the divide separated us from, from our Creator. The good news, though, is that when Jesus came, He came to restore that broken relationship with God. He came to restore that relationship that was broken and draw us back to Him. In His death and resurrection, He takes away our sin from us in front of God, and His blood washes us clean. We are then able to be reconciled back to God in a way we were always meant to be. That is the gospel. God initiates that, and we live in light of that. This leads us to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I said earlier that let reverence and humility be mingled in your service. As you serve, as you respond in how you live your life, because of what Jesus has already done, you do so humbly. Why? Because we do this in response to to understanding who He is and in response to trusting in the finished work of Christ. There is nothing that we do. There is nothing that we do. And so we have to trust in the finished work of Christ. We rejoice because this gospel, this good news, should bring us joy. There is no better news than that of Christ dying for our sins, and that act reconciling us to the God who created us. We rejoice. And we serve the Lord because of this. We serve Him joyfully, knowing that the work is done and that it is finished. We also serve Him as we do this. We do this in humility, as I say, because we understand that we cannot claim any part of it. We were saved by grace. We cannot claim any part of it based off of what we do or what we did and we then as believers as those who have put our trust in him we we fight to live out this inward reality this is all happening in the heart this is all happened in the heart but we have to fight to live that out each and every day of our life paul in philippians 2:12 says work out work out your salvation with fear and trembling This doesn't mean that we have to be anxiously toiling and hoping that our works merit God's favor. No. This means that we demonstrate our faith day by day as we grow in our relationship with God and we trust that His Holy Spirit will help us and it will strengthen us as we do so. The gospel allows us to rejoice with trembling. Without it, it will just be trembling. Without the gospel, there is only trembling. And so when people look at our lives, they need to be able to vouch for us. They need to say that we are the salt and light of the earth. And so if you as a Christian have been sinning, if you have been rebelling, turn back to your Lord the good news of Jesus Christ is still for you today. It's not just for you when you became a Christian. It's not just for you when you initially trusted in Him. It's for you each and every single day. Another implication is because we are rebels, this is also a warning, right? Remember that Christ is reigning. And one day, on that day, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And he will deal with the rebellion of the nations. That includes us, because we are all Gentiles here, unless there are Jewish people in here. We, we are all Gentiles. We are the nations. God will come. Jesus will come and deal with the rebellion, with our rebellion. And why is that? Because he is just. God is just. And unfortunately, Our culture doesn't normally see or like God like this. Joel James continued in his book, he said, sinners prefer a judge who doesn't adhere strictly to the rules. We long for a a divine softy who lets rebels off with a mild lecture or someone like Pilate who can easily be deceived or manipulated. But God isn't like that. He always gives what sin deserves. He is perfectly just. And 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 while he is just, he is also patient, because he doesn't lose his temper and lash out at the rebels. Right? He doesn't lash out against us. Rather, he offers us his gospel. And so if you haven't trusted in Him, I'll say this to you. I'll remind you of what Romans 6.23 says. If you haven't trusted in the Lord, this this is what Paul says to the Romans, to the church in Rome. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we are doing when we sin, when we continue in our life of sin, is that we only... What do you do when you work? You earn wages, right? You earn a salary. What we do in living that out is that we're working ourselves towards death. That's going to be the, the final payment, and rightfully so. But God gives us a way out of that. He, he offers us this gospel. He offers us the good news of Christ. He offers us eternal life. he will still punish sin because he is just and he is fair. That is a good thing. That is not a bad thing. The only difference is that you can stand there by yourself, trusting in yourself, or you can be represented by Jesus. What this will mean then is that the righteous, those who put their trust in him, those who put their faith in him and his finished work, they will be blessed because they would have taken refuge in him notice that it says that blessed are those who take refuge in him the final uh, part of the passage we want to take refuge in him he is the refuge you're not taking refu- you either take refuge in him you can't take refuge from him he's the one who's going to bring the judgment John 3.16 reminds us of this. It says, um, They will not perish. Those who trust in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. Refuge is only found in Him. The unrighteous, the wicked, will experience His wrath and anger, and they will perish. They will get their wages, and that is death. And so a challenge from me to you, or from from the Word to you today, is if you haven't put your trust in Him, if you haven't taken refuge in Him, I invite you to consider that right now. You don't have to do anything. None of us have done anything. It is by grace you can and will be saved through faith. True faith. And that can be your reality today. You just need to wave the white flag and believe that what he did on the cross was for you too. I challenge you. I plead that you may accept his offer today, that you may accept his gift. Our only hope as rebels is Jesus, and I pray that we may all accept his invitation and take refuge in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, yeah, this is a, a difficult psalm to pray through, um, to preach through, um, because there's a lot that we were being warned of. And we, we, we just want to thank you today for just making us realize that the ones who rebel are us and not other people, it's always so easy to point to the next person. Um, but we, we want to trust in the anointed king. We want to trust in the king who is sitting at the right hand of the Father. We want to trust in his finished work. And I just pray, Heavenly Father, that that may be a reality for each and every person sitting here today, each and every person listening from home this morning. I pray that we may run to you, that we may hold on to you, and that we may believe and trust in all that you have for us. We want to take refuge in you, and we pray that they may bring blessing and happiness to our lives as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.